In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When you were a child, did your parents or maybe one of your teachers or a coach have a plan for your life? Were you supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer, a world-famous writer? Maybe you were supposed to be the second baseman for the Chicago Cubs. Now, for some people, these expectations came true, and sometimes they're very happy. I mean, I would have been happy being the second baseman for the Cubs. And sometimes they're miserable. When I was in Bible college, I vividly remember that about two weeks before graduation, I saw one of my classmates sitting at the front steps by the, one of the dorms, and he was looking distraught. And there was a bunch of guys around him, so me and my friends wandered over. And he was telling everyone that during chapel that morning that he realized he loved Jesus, and he loved the church, but that he wasn't called into ministry. It was his parents and youth pastor that had convinced him to go. He's an architect today, and he's happy. Maybe you're someone who followed through with your parents' wishes, and you love it. That happens. In our Old Testament reading over the last few Sundays, we've been focused on the women of the Old Testament, Esther, Naomi, and Ruth. Today our focus turns to Hannah. Hannah is one of the two wives of Elkanah, and Hannah had not been able to have children. And her fellow wife would use that as a cudgel and beat her up and poke her and prod her at every opportunity. Her husband loved her and tried to encourage her, just to no avail. One year... After they made their sacrifice at Shiloh, and after she'd eaten something at the feast, she went to the tabernacle to pray. Now, Eli was sitting there and watching the entrance to the tabernacle and saw Hannah enter. Hannah prays and begins to bargain with God. I know nobody in here would ever bargain with God when you pray, but she did. Give me a son, and he'll be dedicated to you, and take a Nazarite vow for life. Now, what is a Nazarite vow? Nazarite's vow comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, I'm not going to give you all 21 verses of information, but I'm going to hit the five big, quick points here. One, it's supposed to be voluntary. Two, anyone could take it. Men or women, there's no discrimination. It was supposed to be, number three, for a limited time frame, for six months or a year or five years. Number four, The requirements of it are you had to avoid grapes and anything made from them. Wine, raisins, grapes themselves, even the skins of grapes. And avoid dead bodies. And five, you didn't cut your hair for the the entire length of the vow. Now when your time of vow was up, you'd go back up to the temple or the tabernacle, you'd make a sacrifice at the altar, and they would then shear your hair off and place it there and burn it away to show that your time was, was done. And Hannah is standing before God saying, if you'll just give me a son, I'll take this vow on his behalf. Now, the other example in the Old Testament of someone taking a, having a lifelong Nazaritical vow taken for them was Samson. That one doesn't end so well. What happens next, though, needs a little bit of explanation. Now, back... Before, a few hundred years ago, prayer and reading were a spoken affair. Silent prayer and silent reading would not be the norm for thousands of years. When we get to 300 AD, St. Augustine, reading and writing about St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, he said that Ambrose read so much 
was having problems with his voice throughout his life, that he would sit and read silently in his, in his study with his door open. And people would come by, because this was a miraculous thing to behold, apparently. People would stand there and watch him, and be entertained by Ambrose flipping pages in his books, but never uttering a sound. I know that sounds weird to us today, because... Betty, what's one of the first things you teach the little ones after they go through their, their phonics? You teach them what? Yeah. Yeah, read to yourself. Read quietly. Right? For, for, you know, for 2,000 years or so, we, we also have been taught sometimes to come in and pray quietly and pray to ourselves. But back then, when you went to the tabernacle to pray, everyone was, everyone was talking. Either together like we do here in the liturgy, or if, you were, if it was silent, we would not have a silent prayer time before tabernacle. Everyone would be saying it, maybe not loudly, but would be speaking. So when Eli came around and realized this, this lady hadn't left the tabernacle yet, she saw her, you know, she saw him sitting there, lips moving, nothing coming out, and her, his immediate assumption is she's drunk. So he decides to go over and confront her. Instead, when he goes over and they start talking, he finds someone broken, in need of grace and mercy. And he tells her, not get out of the temple, get out of the tabernacle, get away from the altar, but go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you've made to him. And when the family comes back to Shiloh, there's one more member of the family, little Samuel. Our psalm this morning, as you may have noticed, is unusual. It's not actually from the psalms. It's Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving after Samuel's birth. There's no one holy like the Lord, no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble gird on strength. It's her prayer of joy because her prayers have been heard and they've been answered. Now, in a few more weeks, we'll get another psalm that's not a psalm from an expectant mother who gives a similar prayer of joy for her about-to-be-born son. Mary's prayer in the Gospel is influenced by Hannah's prayer here. It's one of those things she would have heard growing up. Now, with last week's gospel, we talked about how Jesus had been in discussion with the experts in the law for a couple of chapters in the temple. And then Jesus went out and sat in the temple watching as everyone went to the treasury and put their money in, including a widow who gave two small coins. And Jesus told his disciples, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. And this week in our Gospel, we see Mary's son Jesus coming out of the temple with the disciples right after that. And as they're leaving, one of them starts talking about the grandeur of the temple. Jesus, look how big the stones are. Look how big the temple and its buildings are. Isn't it a wonder? And Jesus responded by asking, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now when Peter, James, John, and Andrew got him alone, they asked him privately, when is this going to happen? When is the temple going to be thrown down? And Jesus' response still resonates with us today because 
I think it feels like the days we've lived in most of our lives. Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. They will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Think about that for a moment. But then concentrate on that last little bit. This is but the beginning of birth pangs. What's about to be birthed? Now right now in Mark's Gospel, we're in Holy Week. In Mark chapter 11, we have the entry into Jerusalem where, where, where the palms are laid down. And today we remember that as Palm Sunday. These last few chapters that we've read, these last few lessons that we've read over the last few Sundays are taking place in the beginning of Holy Week. In chapter 14, the very next chapter, it's Monday, Thursday. And Jesus is about to be betrayed. Jesus is not saying these things are really, I don't think, going to be signs of the end times, but are simply events that must be suffered before the end times comes. Because later on in the chapter, he tells the disciples, no one knows the day or the hour but the Father. But you have to do these, you have to endure these things first. Instead, it's the beginning of birth pangs. The emphasis is not on the suffering, but on the hope of the coming salvation. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since then has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus had been trying to explain to his disciples for weeks before we get to Mark 13 about what would be happening in the rest of that literal week he's in. But they were more interested in who would get to sit on his right hand and his left hand and how awesome the temple was. Not that its purpose was about to be fulfilled. But this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any need for an offering for sin. We've been forgiven, and not just forgiven. We can now enter into the heavenly temple directly and speak with our great high priest. We have that confidence. Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. We've been baptized with water and cleansed both inside and out. And the writer of Hebrews says our reaction to this good news is to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, to consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, and to not neglect meeting together so we can encourage one another. Now, provoke here is a strong word. It means to stimulate, to really do something, not just to be passive about it. It doesn't mean just pick on someone, for the record. But we should be encouraging each other and showing God's love to the world. And we can't support each other in the faith. We can't stimulate each other to love and good deeds if we never see each other. Coming to church is not simply about fulfilling a duty. It should be about worshiping the living God who saved us and loving and encouraging each other in our faith when we need it. And from there we should be showing God's love to others all the time. Amen. Amen.